This morning, our message is going to be somewhat different. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 2. We finished last week with the seven churches, with Laodicea. And this week, before we move on to the rapture, which will uh, encompass the next two weeks of teaching, next week we're going to talk about the doctrine of the rapture and a very close doctrine, the doctrine of imminency. And then the week after that, we're going to consider all of the different views of the rapture. There are at least four prominent views within Orthodox circles, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, and post-tribulation rapture. We call them theories. Uh, and we're going to walk through those and, and talk about what each one believes, why they believe it, why we stand where we stand. Uh, it might end up extending to a second week, depending on how thorough I get. I've um, put most of, uh, about half of, half of it together, and we'll have to see um, if, it can, if it can be squeezed into one sermon or not. But uh, one way or another, that's going to be dedicating, uh, de- uh, the, uh, going to be our time over the next several weeks. But for today, I'd like to present some history. It's going to be very academic today, uh, a little bit more academic, a little bit less preachy, a little bit more teachy. And it's going to be primarily a history lesson, and I'm going to do so with the intent of uh, perhaps connecting some dots. Uh, We have spent nearly two months exploring the messages of Jesus Christ to the seven churches of Asia. I counted this as worthy of our time because as we consider the essence of any prophetic message, it's intended to serve as motivating, uh, a motivating force for us today. And what's more important for the church to do as we think of a motivating force, indeed more relevant to the church at large than to study the churches of the past and to learn from their successes and failures. So we spent one week on each church in order that we could dig in and that we could understand their successes, we could understand their failures, we could inspect our own lives and our own church and uh, correct ourselves as need be. I hope that this is what the past two months have indeed been for us. I hope that we've inspected our own hearts and, and discerned our own church's place within these, the, the spectrum of those seven churches and determined where we can do better. And today I'd like for us to do sort of a wrap-up. And in doing so, I would like us to ask a question about the nature of these seven churches as they appear in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. The question I'm asking this morning is can we find within the scope of the seven churches of Asia something more than simply teaching about the character of seven churches? And if we're going to be honest with ourselves today, we we, we must entertain the possibility that there's more going on in these two chapters of Scripture than simply talking about the character of seven different churches. And I'll explain why, what I mean by that in just a moment. And if you're willing to acknowledge this with me, then the next question becomes, is God attempting to communicate a little something more? I'm not attempting to be conspiratorial. I'm not attempting to read between the lines this morning. But I want to present to you a theory that I believe might have some merit. And I don't know fully where I stand on it yet. But I want to present it to you because I believe it, 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 it's worth considering. It's worth spending our time on this morning. And it's worth inspecting as we consider the message to these seven churches. First, I'd like to run through a few indicators that would lend us to believe that there might be something more going on in these chapters than just a letter to seven churches. 
The first question that we ask ourselves is, are we dealing in chapters 2 and 3 with prophecy? Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 tells us, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angels unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So John tells us that the book contains the revelation of Jesus Christ to show uh, unto his servants the things that must shortly come to pass. We know that the purpose of the book is to express things that must shortly, uh, imminently, in, in due time and in short time, come to pass. Now obviously we don't want to overthink that statement. John has narrative in the book. He has points where he's telling what's happening at the moment of his vision, right? Those aren't things that are going to come to pass. Those are things that are happening uh, that John is recounting within the scope of the vision. So we want to be careful here, but we do understand that the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is a book of prophecy. It is a book that tells us that which is to come. Now, if you recall, some two months ago, I, I did acknowledge the three general contexts within which John wrote this book. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, uh, uh, John writes, as a message from the Lord, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So we acknowledge that he is writing both the things which are and the things which shall be. To this end, we and, and the, the characteristic interpretation has been that chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the churches, are the things which are, the things which exist, and chapters 4 to the end of the book in 22 are the things which shall be hereafter. And that is an absolutely fine interpretation. It's, it, it, if we'd like, that can settle it. But there are some other things going on in the text which at the very least cause us to sit up and take notice. Two things that I'd like to highlight for you this morning. The first is, as we have walked through these churches, we've emphasized, we've seen just how much God relates the churches to the cities within which they operate, right? How closely He's relating the churches to the history of the city. So when we talked about Philadelphia, and we talked about the, the hot and the cold, and, and the different cities that were around them, and uh, when we uh, talked about uh, Smyr, uh, excuse me, Sardis, the church that was dead while they were living, we talked about how the, the city was very well fortified, and that the only time that it had ever been overthrown were the times when it was passive, when it was not watching. And so we've connected these dots, and we've recognized that there is some historical merit to these letters, wherein the more we know about the cities that, that uh, house these churches, or if we can call it that, the, the deeper our understanding can grow as to the message that Jesus is giving to them. The other element that I would like us to, to think about is we wonder if there might be something more going on here, is that we see seven churches. And I've told you before, we've mentioned on many occasions, that when we see the number seven in the Bible, it ought to perk our ears. We've talked about numbers. We've acknowledged that several, the, how numbers matter in the Bible, right? We've talked about the number three, that number three is an important number that comes up regularly, generally uh, signifying unity and completion. God is in three persons. Man is in three persons. Jesus had three uh, close disciples, Peter, James, and John. Uh, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus was in the grave for three days. Uh, we've talked about 12 a little bit as it relates to Israel. That, uh, of course, Israel had 12 sons, which became 12 tribes. It's within this 12-tribe nation. 
that we see other elements of 12. Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land. Jesus had 12 apostles during his ministry. In Revelation uh, chapter 7, there's 12,000 out of every tribe that is sealed, with the exception of the tribe of Dan. New Jerusalem has 12 gates. Its walls will be 12 by 12 cubits. It has 144 cubits tall, which is 12 by 12, right? Uh, it's 12,000 furlongs long. 40 is an important number in Scripture as it signifies a, a full or defined period of time. The rain and the days of Noah lasted 40 days and 40 nights. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert, 40 years uh, uh, in the wilderness wandering with the people. He spent 40 days on Mount Sinai. He spent, sent the spies into the land for 40 days. Saul, David, Solomon all reigned for 40 years. Jonah's pronouncement of judgment upon Nineveh would take place in 40 days after the pronouncement. Jesus spent 40 days fasting before he was tempted of the devil. Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection. So we see certain numbers, and when we see that number, it should at least cause us to perk our ears and say, is there something going on here? Is there a plan? And there's no number that really should cause us to perk our ears and say, is there a plan more than the number seven? The number of the, the divine number, the number of completion, the number of perfection. Uh, a week is seven, day, seven days long because God uh, finished his creative work in six days and on the seventh day he rested. We spoke of wisdom hewing her seven pillars. Uh, Peter asked Jesus how many times he should forgive his brother, and, Jesus, uh, and he asked, till seven times? And Jesus responded, no, till 70 times seven, heightening the concept of a complete number of times that we ought to forgive. And it is this number, naturally, that we've been speaking about in relation to the churches because there are seven of them. And the question is, why seven? Is it just a number? Is it a number to uh, highlight how many, that, that, that within those seven churches are a complete picture of the character of any church within our age? That's a possible theory. That's a, that, that would be a good explanation. Or is it that if Revelation 2 and 3 did contain prophecy, prophecy of the age that we would call the church age, that within those seven churches there is a span of time leading to the completion of the church age, that in those seven churches can be a picture of the entirety of the age, the prophetic age. Now, it may not be such. It may just be a number chosen by God to show this complete picture of the churches of this, this day and this generation. But I'd like to introduce you to this idea that possibly the seven churches are not just for written to that day in order to rebuke those churches, not just for us to see the character of these churches and to learn, but also to see within them a prophetic timeline leading to the end of the church age. Now we know that Jesus is writing to the seven actual local churches. We know that these churches are reflective of the general conditions of various churches around the world at any given time. So that right now in history, today, all seven of these types of churches are, exist in various places around the world, right? The question is, is there more to it? Is it possible that God's message here might just be as much prophetic as historical? That these seven churches are, in fact, prophecy about the general history of the church age leading to Christ's return. 
So we've spoken before about the characteristics of prophecy, and I'd like to start here because it is important for us to understand the characteristics of prophecy as we, we've talked about them and why it is that our thinking on this would line up possibly quite well with a prophetic church age. We've spoken about how time works in prophecy. We've spoken about how dual fulfillment works in prophecy. But what I want to emphasize in regard to the character of prophecy today is the unique nature of the message as it relates to the hearers. The intent of prophecy is always twofold. First and foremost, the prophecy was meant for the people of that day as it was given, meant to give the people of that day something to hinge their actions upon. That as the people of Israel in the Old Testament were promised a Messiah, they were called by virtue of Messiah's coming to serve the Lord with patience and distinction, to keep themselves pure. To the end, the prophecies of Messiah for that day were primarily motivational in intent. They would read of Messiah. They didn't know how it was going to come about, but they would read of Messiah and they would say, okay, I need to obey the law. I need to keep myself pure. I need to do what is right. It was the motivation that they were supposed to focus in on instead of focusing upon the what and the why that they were, uh, uh, that, excuse me, instead of focusing in on the what and the why in the Old Testament, that they were sinful, that they needed a Savior, that Messiah would come, that they would call the rebellious nation back to Him. The nation became self-righteous, we know, right? And they began focusing, rather than on the what and the why of Messianic prophecy, they began focusing on the how of Messianic prophecy. Instead of saying, Messiah is going to come, and He's going to come to save us from our sins, they started saying, what manner is He going to come? We should be looking for a conqueror. We should be looking for a king. We should be looking for a great charismatic man. To this end, because they missed it, because they started looking at the wrong thing, they lost focus and they missed Messiah, right? When he came, they rejected him. Because instead of focusing on the fact that Messiah would come and just being willing to accept that Messiah would come and then preparing their heart, they started thinking way too much about how he was going to come. Started thinking way too much about the self-righteous, and then it became, they became self-righteous. And they tried to position themselves physically rather than spiritually for his arrival. And they got it completely wrong. They had some 3,000 3, years or so of prophetic prophecy with relation to a Messiah. They directed in their mind the way they believed it was going to come to pass, and they were so sure of how it would happen that when Messiah did come in a manner that they did not expect, they, they rejected and killed him. They missed the message of the day. The message of the day was not all the ins and outs of how he was going to come. Prophecy did not tell them all the ins and outs. They told them where he would be born. They gave enough signs to validate who he would be. But they did not say that he would come explicitly in the manner that he did. And they weren't expecting it. They weren't ready for it. And they missed it. Now the second characteristic of prophecy, however, is a far-reaching message to those of other ages, understood only by those experiencing its fulfillment and afterwards. It's important to understand that apart from God's divine commentary in relation to any given prophecy, the fulfillment of these prophecies can only be understood in its fullness by those who have either lived through it or after the prophecy has been fulfilled. And what I mean by this is that when God says something's going to happen, the generations prior to when it happens can only speculate about how it's going to come to pass because God doesn't fill in all those gaps. 
when it does come to pass? Well, number one, we find out how many speculations were fantastically wrong, right? But secondly, people say, when they read the prophecies, they're able to validate and say, this meets all of the qualifications of the prophecy as it's been given, and though I don't understand everything about it, this is it. It's enough to mark it, and then they can understand it. And then as they look back upon Jesus and his ministry, and they say, oh, that's what the Bible meant in Isaiah 53, when it talked about him being bruised for our transgressions and our iniquities. In the Old Testament, they could not understand that. How can, how can Messiah be be bruised and be killed. And so they, they reinterpreted that. And so Orthodox Judaism says, no, that's not Messiah, that's Israel that's bruised. Right? That's Israel that's been persecuted. And the Messiah is coming to undo that. That's them reading just the Old Testament and attempting to interpret the prophecy. But then Jesus comes. And he fulfills all of, the, the, all of the, the prophetic markers. And at the end of fulfilling that, he dies on the cross and he rises again. And then as he's walking with the men on the road to Emmaus, he's ex- explaining to them out of the Old Testament the scriptures and it all makes sense. And then the Spirit of God comes upon them at Pentecost and more links are being, being made. And, and uh, Peter is drawing, drawing connections between uh, the day of Pentecost and the prophecies of Joel. And he says, this is what Joel was saying. And all of a sudden, prophecy comes to life because they're experiencing it. They're living it. And now we can read these prophecies and look back and say, that's what was happening. So the prophetic message, the the far-reaching message, is to another age. It's to the age in which the prophecies are fulfilled. The how of prophecy is meant for the generation going through it. The what and the why are meant for every generation leading up to it. This is why only after the fact uh, of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, the apostles were able, able, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to understand the fullest nature of Jesus' ministry. Peter would say just as much as he wrote in 1 Peter about prophecy. He would say in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, Speaking of salvation, he says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. Peter says that when the Old Testament prophets were writing of Messiah, were writing of grace and of redemption, they were writing and they they said, Lord, what and what manner of time are these things going to come to pass? They didn't understand. They didn't understand. Imagine Isaiah writing Isaiah 52 and 53. Writing about the king who would be exalted and extolled and lifted up. And then just a few lines later, writing about how his face is so marred he could not even be recognized as a man. Writing about him being killed. How is this possible? Imagine Daniel writing the words in Daniel chapter 9. And after the 69th week, Messiah shall be cut off. And wondering what it means that Messiah would be cut off. What does that mean? And so they inquired and they said... Lord, Jehovah God, the Spirit of Christ which was in us as we're writing this signifies that these things are going to happen, that there are going to be these these, um, events and we don't understand them and we don't understand when. When is this going to happen? And God told them 
Don't worry about it. You're not writing these things for you. You're not writing these things for the people of this age. You're writing these things for those who would go through them, for those who would witness them, for those who would come afterwards. It is unto them that you write these things that are now reported unto you. And so we see here this principle that a far-reaching message is meant for those of another age, understood by those experiencing its fulfillment. And I give you all of this to say that while there is no doubt within every age of the church a tremendous, tremendous lessons that can be learned by the church ages, if indeed it is prophetic, then we would expect that that prophecy would not be identified and understood until toward the end, right? Until the time of its fulfillment or nearing its fulfillment. To that end, if indeed this is prophetic, well, what we'll see is that we would be in the Laodicean age. Now, that Laodicean age might be 50 years or it might be 5,000 years. We don't know that. But if, if indeed this is prophecy then what we'll find is that we are in the Laodicean age just getting into it. At which point, it might make sense that we're beginning to identify it as prophecy because we're nearing its fulfillment. Now, I'm going to give you the pros and the cons of this. As I said, I'm not 100% sold on it, but the more I've studied, the more I've come to appreciate it. The more, I learn, the more I've studied of prophecy, the more I've studied of church history, the more I've come to appreciate it. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you a brief rundown of 2,000 years of church history, which means it's going to be brief, right? We're going to be moving here. It's going to be a lot of history. I hope it wets your whistle for more history. But what I hope it also does to you is helps you see some of the characteristics of the age as we trace church history that can then maybe tick in your mind some interesting connections with the churches as we've learned about them. To that end, I do encourage you to have Revelation 2 and 3 handy. And as I talk through the characteristics of each age, I want you to be looking at the characteristics of the church. And as I talk about the age, I'm not going to... Um, um, I'd love to connect more of the dots today, but for sake of time, I'm not going to go and read through every single church again as I go through the history. I'm going to connect a few dots... If you have your Bibles open, perhaps you can connect a few more. And then at the end, it'll just be up to you to determine whether or not you see enough parallels between the, the church history as it, as it stands and Revelation 2 and 3 to say, yeah, I think there might be some merit to this or to say, you know what, nah, and, and we can just let, let it go by. But I believe there's, there's enough possibility of merit that I want to present it to you this morning. So the church age theory relates each church not only to the physical circumstances of the day, but to the events of history, which would then comprise the entity that is the church age. To this end, as God presents the strengths and weaknesses of each church, He does so not only to talk about the physical churches at their physical times, but also with a general strengths and weaknesses which characterize various events and epochs within the church and within church history. This can only be understood then by those who are looking back toward the end, right? And this is what we talked about. And this is not inconsistent with how God reveals prophecy, and it's not inconsistent with prophecy as a whole. So we'll walk through each church as we've understood it throughout the last seven weeks 
and then apply this general survey of church history to it and see if you can see the parallel sufficiently perhaps to convince you or at least to give you something to think about. Within the timetable, Ephesus is the first church. And the first age would be this age of the apostolic church from about 30 to 100 A.D. These are rough timetables, right? As we see transitions in history, they're not just straight one-date transitions. The first generation of the church is defined heavily by the leadership of the apostles. Within this time, there are divisions, but they're quickly rectified through councils in which the authority of the apostles and elders is brought heavily to bear to keep the church going in the right direction. To this end, false teaching, though prevalent, could not gain any traction throughout the whole of the church, since the apostles would very quickly and decisively put an end to such error. Now, we read about many corrections that had to take place in the early church, right? You read about it in 1 Corinthians and all of their immorality and, and worldliness. We read in First and Second Thessalonians about their confusion as it relates to end times. We le- read in Galatians about their confusion as it relates to legalism. We read in, in Colossians about their confusion as it relates to the, uh, the old heresy of Gnosticism. And so we see various heresies finding their way into the church, and Paul and the apostles would kind of be putting out all of the brush fires of these errors that were already in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s AD spreading into the church. A large portion of the New Testament, in fact, is dedicated to combating and correcting various errors within the church. Once the apostles were mostly martyred, however, things become more complicated. Churches were now, in a manner of speaking, on their own. There was no general unified leadership in the church as we see it. This is why the letter, the letter that was written the, the seven letters written to the seven churches in Revelation were written to the individual angels or messengers to the individual churches. They couldn't just give it to one man and then have a top-down authority save the apostles themselves. And thus John was writing it. Each church seemed to be quite independent of the others. And only at select times within the early years of the church history do we see a body come together to make decisions that would then filter out to the various local churches. To this end, we might see the connections between this time in history and the church of Ephesus. Both were working hard, but as the age progressed, as the apostles passed off the scene, the churches began to lose perspective on the fight, though they maintained the fight. But because perhaps they had lost their first love, their effectiveness waned and gave way to a new type of church. To this end, as the Lord says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. Thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. This is the church that tried those that claimed apostolic authority. Right? That might even make sense within the apostolic church of of 30 to 100 A.D. That there would be that, that fight over apostolic authority. Who is an apostle and who is not? Even in the midst of their problems, however... They had patience. They had labored. They had not fainted. So God calls them to remember what they, where they had fallen. They hated the Nicolaitans, that false doctrine, the doctrine of Balaam. And he promises that to the overcomers they would eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This leads us to the second age within this theory, Smyrna, which would be from about 100 to somewhere around 300, 312 A.D., Smyrna, we know, is the persecuted church. 
Now, persecution did not begin in 100. We would uh, recognize that from the very beginning of the church, the Jews had begun to persecute, uh, particularly in Jerusalem. There was a great amount of persecution of the church. We know in Thessalonica there was a great amount of persecution in the church. But as far as, as the Roman Empire would be concerned, the heaviest persecution began after 96 AD, after the reign of uh, Domitian ended. So we know that Emperor Nero, he ruled from about 54 to 68 AD, uh, that he had persecuted the Christians, he had kicked uh, the Jews out of Rome, the Christians were still considered a sect of Judaism at that point. They were lauded together because they were both monotheistic religions and Christianity had technically come out of Judaism. So Romans saw Judaism and Christianity as, as two sects of the same religion at that point. Uh, uh, Christian leaders were arrested and killed at that point. But Christianity was not wholesale persecuted until after the reign of Domitian ended in 96 AD. At this point, Emperors increasingly saw themselves as divine, and so they saw Christianity's monotheism as a direct threat, not just to, uh, the, uh, to relig religious authority, but also to state authority. Christians became scapegoats for many of the empire's problems. Persecution was not constant during these years, but it was steady, and it would grow, and it was certainly a hallmark of this age. Beginning with Nero in 65 AD, there were 10 primary waves of persecution that we can identify upon Christians over the course of about 200 years, climaxing with the reign of Diocletian who outlawed Christianity, burned all of their buildings, destroyed their sacred texts, which is why there are not very many early manuscripts, because Diocletian had them all burned, imprisoned church leaders, and anybody who was convicted of being a Christian would have their Roman citizenship revoked, and therefore they would lose all of the protections of, they would lose all legal protections. If you were not a Roman citizen, you did not have legal protections uh, in the Roman Empire. So they would lose their legal protections. They would lose all of their benefits if they were found to be Christians. All of this happened uh, climaxing with Diocletian toward the end of this age. 303 to 313 was his reign over the Roman Empire. This persecution, however, caused Christianity to strengthen tremendously. They were forced to defend their faith. They had to defend their faith. They had to know how to defend their faith. They also, this is a big one, they also began to debate which books were worth dying for. Which letters were worth dying for. I mean, if you are going to die for your faith, then you're going to make sure that you're not dying just for a letter. You're going to die for inspired scripture. So the debate over which books are inspired really began to, to surface in this time. It would not be settled until uh, 397, officially 397 at the Council of Carthage, which is a little bit after this age. But in this age, there were, there were uh, groups of people that were getting together and saying, okay, which books are inspired scripture? Which books are we going to take a stand for and say, yes, I will die for this, for this epistle? Or, no, 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 that one, no. I can, I, I'm fine recant, re, renouncing that one. I'm not going to die for that one because that one already has problems. That one's not inspired scripture. All of that was going on during this time. Now, again, let's relate this to the church, uh, to the, the church of, of Smyrna as is presented in Revelation chapter 2. God says to the angel of the church of Smyrna, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, 
the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. We might within this theory uh, expand the synagogue of Satan to not just be the Jews explicitly, but to be the pagan religions around them. And then notice this next bit. He says, Fear none of these things, verse 10, that thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. We had mentioned that ten is, is oftentimes in Scripture a number that has a definitive end, but that nobody really knows what this means. We also mentioned that as you pinpoint church history, these, these 200 years, there are ten waves of persecution from ten emperors throughout this time. So perhaps it is, if we're linking history to the Bible, that we would see in this a, a, a correlation that there would be 10 waves of persecution within these 200 years. Pastor, this is sounding hokey. I'm sorry if it does. Feel free to just walk away and think nothing of it. But I, I, I want to give this to you this morning because I think that there might be some merit here. The promise to overcomers is that they would have a crown of glory. There is no rebuke in this, for, to, to this church in this time. They are a church that is distinct. They are a church that is growing. And you would expect it to be so because they are a church being martyred. The third general age of the church is from about 312 to 590 A.D. This age of the church is unique. Diocletian, that, that evil emperor, divided the empire into an eastern portion and a western portion. And he did this to make the empire a little bit better, uh, easier to control. His successor, Galerius, issued what was called the Edict of Tolerance in 311 A.D., which said that they are willing now to tolerate the Christians. They are no longer going to actively persecute Christians. Instead, there will be tolerance uh, uh, within the empire, allowing Christians to function as long as they did not disturb the public peace. They couldn't go out and street preach. They couldn't do those things. But as long as they left others alone, uh, the government would leave them alone. This leads to the reign of a man named Constantine the Great. Constantine uh, had a conversion experience, which I won't get into. It, it, it may have been real. It may have been imaginary. We don't know from history. But Constantine had a conversion experience. And he, he said that if, if, uh, if he won this battle, he would convert to Christianity. And so he wins this battle. He converts to Christianity. And he puts forth an edict called the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan not only allowed the church to be tolerated, but it gave the church rights, uh, privileges. Um, it made them recognized in the empire, effectively making Christianity uh, one step short of the state religion. I mean, your emperor is a Christian, and now he's giving Christians all these privileges. Most people, because the emperor had been God for the last 300 years, he'd been divine, most people are going to go where the emperor goes as far as religion. So, now uh, Christianity is, is not just accepted, but it is very popular. This changed everything, and not necessarily for the better. Christians characteristically met in homes or simple buildings up to this point. The newfound protection enabled them to build elaborate buildings. Churches became a thriving enterprise. Clergy were not taxed uh, like everyone else in the empire was taxed. The state even gave allowances to church leaders. Being a Christian became the in thing to do which allowed a great deal of culture to infiltrate the church. The church became institutionalized. The leaders of the church became less shepherds of the flock and more business people. 
Because churches were becoming so big, it was now necessary to add new roles. It was not enough just to have a shepherd of the flock. So they had presbyters over the individual churches, and then they would appoint bishops over regions. And those bishops would then oversee the individual presbyters within the church, or elders within the church. One of the most prominent of these bishops was in the capital, because it was rich, powerful. And so the bishop of Rome began to rise in power during this time. At the same time, there were many debates, doctrinal debates, raging in the church. One of the most prominent was over apostolic succession. The idea that because the apostles had appointed leaders in the churches, that those leaders had appointed other leaders, and now men were seeking to claim heightened authority. Apostolic succession, saying that they had apostolic authority because they were appointed by someone who was appointed by someone who was appointed by one of the apostles to lead the church. It's perhaps no surprise that these church leaders were greatly elevated in culture. They kind of became superstars. They became well-known. They became celebrities within Rome. They uh, would end up becoming statesmen. They would uh, become um, uh, uh, men who would um, be involved in diplomatic relations among the various groups, among the various nations, among the various peoples. It's no surprise then that as the church rose in prominence and in power, the leaders would become vain. They would become power-seeking. They looked to be leaders of servants rather than servant leaders. By 440 AD, the Roman bishop was claiming authority over the other bishops. And the idea of the Pope was born. Where now the bishop of Rome had authority over all the other bishops who had authority over the churches. And a hierarchy began to form. This is some 450 years following the, uh, well, about 400 years following the advent of the church, a little bit over that. Now church was a part of culture. This means naturally that pagan culture found its way into the church. The church had met on the first day of the week in the early church, we know, but they also met at other times. The first day of the week was more commonly ratified during this time because Sunday was a day of rest declared throughout the empire as a means by which to honor the sun god. Since it was a day of rest, it was a day where you could get more people into church. So the church characteristically met on Sunday as a means by which to get the most people into church because they had nothing else to do. There was also a merging of Roman feasts with Christian feasts. The Roman feast of Saturnalia took place on December 25th. It was converted into the recognition of the birth of Christ. Spring feast of Austra, who was a goddess of fertility, was merged with the Christian observance of Passover, which is where you get the rabbits and the eggs and all those things. Some people may disagree on this. There are lots of people that would take Christmas and, and uh, Easter and, and bring them to more righteous ends than these. But we do see this merging within the, the, the Roman Empire and their pagan practices and the Christian practices simply because Christianity was so deeply rooted into the, the culture at this time. At this time as well, reverence for martyrs of years gone by became very popular. We think of that age between 100 and 300, the age where there were tremendous martyrs, and these martyrs began to be elevated greatly in culture, and they began to be revered because now those martyrs could be spoken of publicly. And the reverence got to be significantly more than just reverence, to where people began to worship these saints of years gone by, thinking that they had special access to God and a special place in heaven because of their martyrdom. Thus, the 
revering of the saints and sainthood and all of these things began to take place in the church. All was not bad, however. The church still held much of its doctrinal purity at this point. The deity of Christ was reaffirmed in 325. We talked already about 397 when the, the canon was recognized. At this point, there was no, if we can call it this, Roman Catholic Church. There was the Catholic Church, which was simply saying that the church was attempting to be unified. But there was no Roman Catholic Church in doctrine, although we begin to see some of these things form with the Pope and the revering of saints and these sorts of things. We compare this with our third church, the church of Pergamos. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. They were holding fast his name and had not denied the faith. However, they had allowed the doctrine of Balaam to come in. A doctrine of, of merging, committing spiritual fornication, of allowing the world into the church. And indeed, that is a lot of what we see in this time. As the church was legalized, we see culture begin to invade the church. I mean, if the church is legalized and it becomes popular, then who are you going to have in your churches? You're going to have a lot of pagans. How are you going to keep them there? You're going to keep them there through paganism. Very similar to what we're seeing in our day to day. And so we might again see these reflections. However, their, their doctrine was still fairly accurate at this time. Just compromise with pagan culture. Nonetheless, however, there were, of course, overcomers, and they, like all ages, had their place in glory. This gives way to the longest period of time. Hope that's fairly readable up there for you. The fourth age of the church, 590 to 1517-ish, about a thousand-year period. We often call it the Dark Ages. This is the Catholic Church defined by idolatry. Popes began getting stronger and wielding significantly more power over and political influence, power over the nations. Around 500 AD, a pagan tribe called the Franks, the predecessors to modern-day France, were at war. The king, his name was Clovis. His wife was a devout Christian, and he said, if we win this battle, then I'll convert our nation to Christianity. They win the battle. He has his men baptized on the battlefield. The Pope hears about this and he's excited. So he deigns this king to be called the most Christian king. Strengthening the ties between the state and the church. Now states would be vying for this title of Christian king. And popes would be starting to wield and exert power over the state. As popes became stronger, the church became more political. The common man saw the hypocrisy of the church and began to drift away from it. So the church began to tighten its grasp. The Catholic Church led by force and manipulation and guilt. They used their power coupled with the ignorance of the common man to compel religious devotion. But it was most certainly not all bad. Most certainly not all bad in this time. Some tremendous men of God wrote during this time in the midst of all of this idolatry and evil. We might see the Catholic Church as deeply corrupt, which it was. But there were many faithful and true men within the church who were deeply grieved, always working toward reform, who would write against the direction that the church had gone and the church was going, unsuccessful though they were. There were also groups of believers that had come completely out of the Roman system altogether and would find themselves in enclaves in the mountains where they would uh, live according to the dictates of their own conscience, completely separated from the expectations and all of the, the, the 
um, trappings of the Catholic Church. These would include groups like the Moravians from which we would trace our heritage in the Baptist Church. A primary focus of their discontent was this idea of wanting to be baptized after salvation, an issue which was a very major problem in the Roman Church. At this time as well, Islam began to exert its power in the Middle East. This false religion grew in prominence. The Church of the East and and North Africa, which was a church that was not necessarily Roman Catholic in origin. They had their ties to Rome uh, because they had all at one time been tied through the empire, but they were not necessarily the Roman Catholic Church. It was almost completely eliminated. Islam began to threaten Europe as well. It began to encroach into Europe. This led to the Crusades where the Pope inspired men and in certain cases even children to go to the Holy Lands and to fight against Islam in the name of preserving the Eastern Church. This led to several notable results. First, Islam was driven back and it was moved away from Europe until really the last 20 years when they've infiltrated once again. Second, there was a final severing of the eastern wing of the Catholic Church from the western wing of the Catholic Church. The western wing of the Catholic Church became the Roman Catholic Church, and the eastern wing of the Catholic Church became definitively the Greek Orthodox Church. And they would take quite different paths. The Greek Orthodox Church would particularly move up into Russia, and the Roman Catholic Church would dominate western Europe. Finally, There was a huge rift that was formed between Islam and Christianity and Judaism and Christianity because of the brutality of the Crusades. Throughout this time, there also began something called tribunals, which would roll over into uh, these things called inquisitions. Beginning in 1184 AD with the medieval inquisition, these were movements to remove heretical groups from the church. At first, they were quite good. They removed legitimate heresies and they would simply identify these people and get them out of the church. But it soon became something much more. It soon be, be, uh, turned into forcible conversions at threat of death. Many of the faithful, if you would read about the Fox's Book of Martyrs or, or um, the Martyr's Mirror, many of the people that died in those books died in the inquisitions of the Catholic Church against their doctrinal distinctives. During this time, the church was also very heavy-handed. The Catholic Church was very heavy-handed against the Jews, forcing conversions, putting many to death, leaving a very bitter taste in the mouths of, the, of, of Jews in regard to the Catholic Church. Now, as we consider this in relation to the fourth church, the Church of Thyatira, we recall that the Church of Thyatira, though they had works, had this problem, and the problem was that they were suffering this woman, Jezebel, and her followers, Right? And we mentioned that Jezebel being this incredibly evil woman in the scriptures, uh, pretty much the, the most evil woman in all of the scriptures. And it might not be too much of a, of a far link for us to say that the Catholic Church could very well be Jezebel. And that God would say to the church, you just keep doing what you're doing and I'll deal with this Jezebel and her followers in my time. And that might explain how and why the church of Thyatira would have this woman in her midst who's so evil, following the doctrine of Balaam, teaching people to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, and commit fornication. And he says, I will kill her and her followers with death. And once again, we might just see the historical link. To the overcomers, there's promised true authority given by God over the nations, not a false authority imposed from false doctrine as the Catholic Church endeavored to impose upon the world, but the true authority of God to the overcomers. 
This leads us to the next age as we hasten on. The church was obviously in a really bad place by 1500 AD. But for some time, the groundwork had been laid for this thing called the Reformation. Work of men like John Wycliffe, John Huss, Desiderius Erasmus had called the church to Reformation for a number of years. The Catholic Church had been actively removing and persecuting these people, these dissenters, for a number of years. Enter a man named Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a lawyer who had devoted himself to the church in 1505 A.D. After six years of study, he was racked with guilt over the reality of his sin, recognizing he could not meet the righteousness of the law as God asked it of him. And to this end, he hated God. And he hated God because he knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he was not righteous. And he hated God because God would, would create us sinful, would, 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 would allow us to be sinful, would make us these sinful creatures, or allow us to be the sinful creatures while simultaneously demanding of us perfection. And he hated that. Until in 1517, he was reading in the Greek New Testament and he came across Romans 1 verse 17, which says this, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And it changed everything. Later in that year, a Dominican monk named Tetzel came to the town selling indulgences in order to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica. Indulgences were a means by which you could buy favor with God and buy away your guilt for sin. Many people, fooled by the lies of the church, were giving their money to him, expecting to buy favor with God, and Luther had a real problem with this. So he challenged Tetzel to a debate. Luther was a good Catholic. Tetzel was a good Catholic. Neither one wanted to come out of the Catholic Church. Luther just wanted to debate these concepts. So on October 31st of 1517, he took 95 theses that would be the foundation of his debate with Tetzel, and he nailed them to a church door in Wittenberg. Why did he nail them there on that date? Because November 1st was All Saints Day, and he knew everyone would be in church. So he knew that they'd read it, that everybody would read it, on the door of the church as they went in, and that this was a public call to debate, a public forum for debate. Luther in no way intended to rebel against the church, simply to debate its official claims and reform it from within. Without, within weeks, however, these 95 theses spread throughout the region. Within uh, months, it was all throughout Europe. At the same time, there was a man named Ulrich Zwingli. He began a reform movement in Switzerland, which also became very prominent. He and Luther never allied because Luther believed in this thing called consubstantiation, believing that uh, in, it's not transubstantiation of the Catholic Church, but the idea that when uh, a person cons uh, consumed communion, that there was a, a power of the body and the blood of Christ that would, would come upon them, whereas Zwingli believed, as we do today, that the Lord's Supper was memorial or symbolic in nature. So they were friends, but not partners. In uh, France in 1534, a young lawyer named John Calvin was forced to flee the country because he had written favorably about Martin Luther and about Erasmus. He flees to Switzerland, where there's more religious freedom. He enacts his vision for a church-state system in the city of Geneva, but it was quite corrupt. 
Calvin and Zwingli agreed on this church-state system. They both had a church-state system. But there was a large group within these movements that did not believe in this. They called themselves the Swiss Brethren. And they believed the Bible taught baptism by immersion, not baptism of infants. Zwingli and Calvinism saw this as a threat to the state and the church. Uh, they nicknamed them derogatorily the Anabaptists, meaning to baptize again. They were banished from Zurich. They were um, persecuted both in Zurich and in Geneva. By 1535, Anabaptists were being persecuted and killed by Protestants and Catholics alike for this faith. And by 1600, it's estimated that over 10,000 Anabaptists had been killed because they believed in being baptized after salvation. Until a man came along, and his name was Menno Simons. And Menno Simons, uh, he, got, um, he, he got with the Anabaptists and he organized them. He was a Dutch priest. He took leadership of the movement. He got rid of some of the elements of their doctrine which were wrong. And he systematized and focused the movement. In 1520, uh, 1542, this man, Menno Simons, and his followers, which became known as Mennonites, began to be hunted down. Another sect of Mennonites grew, led by a man named Jacob Amman in Germany, and they became known as the Amish. Simultaneously, one of the most important things to take place in this time was the work of a man named William Tyndale. Tyndale was a, a chaplain who had tremendous burden to see the scriptures accessible to the common man. To this point, the Catholic Church had made sure that the scriptures were only found in Latin, and very few knew Latin. The, man could not, the common man could not read scripture for himself. Tyndale fled to Germany where he began to translate the New Testament into the common language. By 1526, 6,000 copies of the English New Testament uh, were translated and began to pour into England. By 1530, Tyndale was arrested, strangled, and burned at the stake by Henry VIII for doing this work. This time period also saw the rise of the Puritans, a group which came out of the Catholic Church and sought to purify the Catholic Church. They were forced to flee to Holland, eventually to the New World, America, where they sought to build a culture founded upon religious liberty. All of this happening outside of the Catholic Church proper. Within the Catholic Church, they began what's called the Counter-Reformation. They targeted Protestants uh, in the Inquisitions. The Inquisition focused primarily on the Protestants, killing them. They formed the Jesuit Order which was designed as an insurgency group to go into uh, governments that were not under the power of the Pope and to topple them and to bring them back under the power of, of Rome. They also did, however, reform some practices. They never reformed the doctrines, but they reformed some practices that, made them, that, that, that gave them a black eye. They stopped selling indulgences. They elevated Scripture to finally at least be on the same level as tradition. Uh, so church tradition and Scripture were now... Level, whereas before, tradition was more important than Scripture. Uh, they deemed now, instead of just works being necessary for salvation, they did admit that faith had to be in there with those works. They required all masses to be in Latin to combat the English language, or the, the Bible being translated into English. So the next 400 years of the church, really until, until, until not long ago, were dictated by this council, the council um, and, and these expectations there at the Council of Trent. Obviously, I've gone through uh, a lot of history very quickly. Much more could be said about this. I hope it wets your whistle for church history. But as we consider this in relation to Sardis, this is the one that perhaps breaks down the most. Now, I'm not afraid to say so. Uh, Sardis was the church that was dead while they were living, if we recall. 
They have a name that they live, but they are dead. That would certainly, uh, that would certainly define the Catholic Church just before the Reformation. A little bit harder to define within the Reformation itself. But it is a good reflection of the state of the church before that Reformation took hold. God's presence in the church had only a few, a, a very small remnant of the faithful. And that's what we see in verse 4. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then he gives the promise to the overcomers that he would not blot their name out of the book of life. Two more eras that we'll get through quickly. The sixth church, Philadelphia. The next era is, even apart from the seven churches of, of, of Revelation, we have to admit that the next era of the church is the church's golden age. It is the church's golden age. The new world is a place of religious freedom. The church has removed the shackles, been removed from the shackles of the power of Rome, and Rome's power over the state has been removed. The Puritans settled in New England under a church-state system. This system was still very harsh, very rigid, similar to the, the system of the Calvinists and, and of the Zwingliites. The Puritans um, would not regard any sort of dissent in this church-state system. 1635, a man named Roger Williams was in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and he was preaching baptism after salvation. He also was preaching that people should be kind to the Native Americans rather than to take the, the land of the Native Americans by force. These things were not things that were appreciated by the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So they, they kicked him out of the colony. Uh, uh, he also believed that civil judges should not enforce, enforce religious law. So they kicked him out of the colony and he went to form a new colony. He called the name of the city Providence the colony was called Rhode Island, and he founded the first Baptist church in the New World in 1639. Subsequently, two years later, he separated from that church like a good Baptist. That's what Baptists do, unfortunately. But the, the, the prominent contention was separation of powers of church and state. He did not like the idea of the church and the state being wedded, and it would be that particular colony that would be very forceful in adding the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights. Far more important in this time, however, is what we call the Great Awakening. It was not one movement as much as many movements under one um, umbrella. In Lutheran Germany, earnest Bible study was led by a pietist movement dominated by a man named uh, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, a group called the Moravian Brethren. The Moravians had a profound impact upon the world, particularly two men named John and Charles Wesley. John and Charles Wesley in 1735 had gone to America as missionaries to the Native Americans. Three years later, they returned to England and began to interact with the Moravians where they both realized that they were unbelievers. They got saved in 1738 and things really took off from there. They started a newfound movement highlighting discipline in, in the method of living and they became known as the Methodists. In the American colonies, they were shaken to their core by a man named Jonathan Edwards, a preacher and a theologian. He began his ministry in 1729. He saw very little fruit until 1734. But within six months, in the span of six months in 1734, they saw an estimated 300 people saved. It began a revival that spread all throughout New England by 1741. At the same time, there was an evangelist named George Whitfield who was traveling between America and England preaching, seeing lives changed. He was a favorite of Benjamin Franklin, George Whitfield was. Even though George Whitfield says he didn't agree, with, or Benjamin Franklin didn't agree with him, he still loved to hear him preach. The Second Great Awakening would take place in the 1800s. Charles Finney, 
was a revivalist, perhaps most well known for originating the idea of the come down invitation, confrontational evangelism in that way. He traveled the United States in the early 1800s, a major influencer over the movement to abolish slavery. He was very, very vocal in the movement to abolish slavery. It's estimated that um, some half a million people would be converted under his ministry. In England, the nation was being influenced by a preacher named Charles Spurgeon, tremendous theologian and preacher, prolific writer. It's estimated that some 10 million people heard him speak throughout his life. In the late 1800s, back in America, an evangelist named D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody, began a different type of evangelism. To this point, evangelism had generally been out in the rural areas where they'd set up big tents. D.L. Moody took it into the cities, and he would uh, evangelize within the inner city to the city folk. The meetings would actually begin in England, but took hold in America. An entire generation of church leaders was trained under his leadership. Then there was a man named Billy Sunday, who was an alcoholic and a baseball player. He got saved. He quit baseball and he got into evangelism. He was a fiery preacher emphasizing holiness, particularly preaching against alcohol, which was a big problem in the early 1900s. By the time he would leave a city, oftentimes every single bar within that city would be shut down. He was instrumental in the passage of the 18th Amendment of the Constitution adopted in 1919, uh, getting rid of alcohol in the United States for a brief period of time. The final thing we consider within this age is the modern missions movement, which grew to its strength in this time, 1750 to 1925. The 17 and 1800s saw a movement to go into the world and win souls unlike anything we've seen in the church since the early days. William Carey really began the whole thing. He developed a tremendous heart for unreached people, in the late 1700s, at that time, the churches had no heart for going out and reaching folks. He was somewhat of a laughingstock. Carey best articulated the importance of reaching out to the lost at a time when people assumed that the elect would be saved regardless of anything that the church did so they did not waste their time reaching out to them. He left for India in 1793 where after seven years, all of his children were dead. His wife had sunk into depression and he'd seen only one convert. During those years, however, he had learned many of the local languages, so he switched his ministry to begin Bible translating, and he laid the groundwork for national and training national pastors. He laid the groundwork for, for uh, everything that's been done in that region ever since. The same could be said of a man named Adoniram Judson, who left for a place called Burma. He was the tip of the spear in that region. Several wives, many of his children died. He translated the Bible into Burmese. At the time of his death, he'd planted over 100 churches, and he'd seen over 8,000 people converted to, to Christ. That entire region today still lives under the shadow of his ministry. Hudson Taylor committed himself to China in 1849. He arrived there in 1854, where he integrated into the Chinese lifestyle. He served in China for 51 years. During that time, 800 missionaries joined him, inspired by his love for the Lord, and an estimated 50,000 people were converted. This would continue. In 1865, he founded the China Inland Mission, responsible for a tremendous surge in Christianity until the communist overthrow of China in the 1950s, where most of the Christians and missionaries were killed. These men are but three of so many that we could talk about. Men like David Brainerd, so many others. People that went around the world winning souls in a way never before seen in the church. Once again, as we connect this to Revelation chapter 3 in the church of Philadelphia, we uh, might not have to jump too far to see the similarities. They were a church that was given an open door 
They were a church that no man, uh, an open door that no man could shut, that worked hard, that bore the results and souls won around the world to Christ, leading us to our final age. And if Revelation 2 and 3 is in fact prophecy, then it's also the final age of the church. The 1800s witnessed a strong rise in liberalism in the church. German theologians had begun to practice what's called higher criticism, which sought to lessen the authority of the Bible and subject it to man's reasoning. Add to this the philosophies of the 1700s Enlightenment, which in France said that man could have moral, morality and greatness without God, and America said morality and greatness came only from God. Godlessness began to abound. Culture, living off the benefits of the Reformation, sought to prove that it wasn't God but man who brought the renewal of arts and morality and civility. Theologians began to assimilate into this thinking, into Darwinian evolution and Freudian psychology. The world was beating at the door and many churches opened that door wide. The last hundred years has been a time of isms in the church. Liberalism of the late 1800s demanded a response in the form of fundamentalism, which was a basic reassertion of the fundamentals of the faith. This created a hard line between one sect of the church and another sect, one of which wants to infiltrate culture and capitulate to culture, the other of which wants to remain separated from culture. In culture, modernism was rejecting all things spiritual. There was a time that was extremely optimistic before World War I and World War II caused that to crash down. People thought that, that the cultures would just continue to get better and that people would continue to forge toward peace and that things would just continue to get more and more moral. The church was completely discredited in 1925 at the Scopes Monkey Trial, uh, at, at which point there was a, a, a strong um, antipathy put between science and religion as they began to fight one against another instead of recognizing that they are completely compatible. At the same time, the modern charismatic movement began to form with an unbiblical emphasis upon miraculous manifestations of the Spirit. Emphasis within these movements went away from the foundations of the Bible toward feelings and toward new revelation, towards things that are uh, subjective rather than objective. New evangelicalism began to emerge in the 1950s, stressing to a generation of preachers that they should not contend for the faith, but that they should win the world by infiltrating the world. No distinction was greater than the distinction during this time between John R. Rice and Billy Graham. John R. Rice being the face of fundamentalism, having written well over 200 books and sold 60 million copies, read throughout the country and churches everywhere, the foundation of fundamentalist culture. In the 1940s, John R. Rice identified a new evangelist who he threw all of his weight behind named Billy Graham. For about 10 years, the Sword of the Lord, John R. Rice's publication, was very uh, strong, pushing for Billy Graham, thinking him to be the next D.L. Moody. Billy Graham had a crusade. His first crusade took place in 1949. It was immensely popular. These would continue for years and take on a national scale. He was more than just an evangelist. He became truly a Christian statesman to the world. He soon exhibited this trend, however, and there was a separation for, between Billy Graham and John R. Rice over this very decision. Do we infiltrate the world or do we separate from the world? John R. Rice wanted to maintain a separation. Billy Graham said we need to infiltrate. As long as he could preach the gospel unfiltered, he would regularly tone down his doctrine to keep the culture's ear. Many were one to Christ. However, this method set the tone in the church for years to come. And today we operate within a church that is above all things lukewarm, pragmatic, compromising. We want Jesus and the world, justifying how both can be married together. 
We see throughout the past 100 years the church changing position on everything from marriage to women teachers to the very fabric of what makes us men and women. It's nearly impossible but to see that this church is a lukewarm church. And to that end, we might see the characteristics, the, the similarities between the church of Laodicea and the time from about 1925 to the present. Now, I know I gave you a ton of history very, very quickly. I skipped so much, I probably should have skipped a lot more. The question is, however, is this valid? There are some reasons why it may not be. My, my first question is, is God really going to trace the true church through Rome? That doesn't make sense to me at all. However, when we see that the church of Thyatira would be the time of Roman do dominance and that this woman Jezebel had infiltrated the church, it makes a little more sense to me. And I think I could be comfortable with that. What about imminence? If Jesus' return is imminent, we'll talk about that next week, and indeed it is, how can we say it's imminent if we have to get through each of these ages before Jesus Christ can come? Doesn't it destroy the doctrine of imminence? We'll talk about this more next week, but I would remind you that imminence is not God's problem, it's man's problem. If God has not opened the mind of man to understand this prophecy until the last age, then up until that point, every single, every single age would be living under the very same imminence we live under today. Every single age would still live under imminence because imminence is about my perspective toward the end times, not God's. God has always had a plan. He's always known the date or the hour. It's simply man that does not. Imminence is a man problem, not a God problem. And to this end, I do not believe that the problem of imminence is actually a problem within God's plan, even where prophecy is involved. Messiah could come at any time through any woman throughout the Old Testament, but God knew he'd come through Mary. God knew when, when, when Jesus would be born. And so I don't necessarily see a problem there, although um, many do, and I, I don't begrudge them that. There are certainly other potential problems as well. And to that end, I still call it a theory and I preach it as such. I'm not asking you to believe it, but I do believe that as we study history and as we study prophecy, it has enough merit to make you aware of. And plus, it's good to know some church history. Let me apply in two ways as we close this morning. Number one, in relation to prophecy, I want to encourage you in this regard, even as we study over the next several weeks the prophecies of the book of the Revelation as it relates to end times, focus on the what and the why, not the how. Humans are notoriously bad at guessing how prophetic fulfillments come about. More often than not, when humans have tried to guess how God is going to bring about prophetic fulfillment, we've placed their hopes so strongly on what they think that is correct that when it comes, we are at best disappointed, at worst disillusioned. As we study beginning next week the rapture of the church and the events of the last days, we need to be careful that we're not spending so much time figuring out how it's going to happen and why it's going to happen and who the identity of Babylon is and who the identity of the whore that rides the beast is and, and this and that. And we, don't, that we need to be careful that we're not spending so much time on the who's and the how's and the order of events that we forget what God is telling us in the first place, which is this. He's telling us what will happen so that he can compel us to avoid it, to flee to the cross so that we can avoid the wrath that is to come. And if our focus on prophecy rests primarily on the intellectual curiosities and the fantastic concepts surrounding the signs and the wonders and the judgments, then we're going to miss the point. We're going to miss it. And if we become so rigid in our convictions about how these things are going to play that it causes us to miss the purposes that we have stated, then we're on dangerous ground and we're very similar to the place where national Israel was before Christ. So let's be careful that we're not so focused on the what and the why 
uh, or uh, excuse me, on the how that we lose the what and the why. What is prophecy? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why has it been given to us? So that today we can live in distinction. How is it going to happen? Well, we get a few things. We learn a few things about the how. We can stick to those. We can begin to speculate, but don't let the speculations override the purpose of prophecy. Okay? Number two, and finally, in relation to history, remember that every age still has all types of Christians, and the overcomers in every age will yet be rewarded. The spirit of the age in no way implies that the, all seven of these types of churches do not exist. After all, in China right now, they're seeing what we might call a revival of sorts. In South Korea, there's a, a, a very distinct church. Can we really say that the entire world is Laodicea? No, we can't. But we can say that the spirit of the dominant church of the ages, which is, where, which is what we trace church history through, right? We can trace movements here and there throughout the, the last 2,000 years of church history. But if we trace the dominant tenor of church history, this is what we're seeing. The dominant Western church has become lukewarm. There will always be overcomers. There will always be hypocrites. There will always be apostates. There will always be good and bad. Until the Lord comes, we live and we serve. The point is never that we just throw up our hands and say, well, we're in Laodicea and age, so I guess there's no point in anything else. No point in trying. If, if my teaching today led you to that, then I have failed. Much better for you not to even hurt any of this than to think, because we're in the Laodicea and age, I can be lukewarm. We are to live with distinction and godliness and fervor. We are to be one of the faithful in a time where faithfulness is becoming fewer and far between among God's people, among the, within the church. My purpose this morning is to inform more than it is to convince. Whether you see merit, merit in this theory or not is not actually my primary concern. But what I do hope today has done for you is to give you a perspective on the ebb and the flow of church history to root your feet firmly within the scope of that flow as we enter into the consideration, <clears throat> considerations of what is to come. Do not be so caught up on, pastor said this and I disagree with his timing on that or I disagree with what he says about that, that we, get, that we lose sight of what prophecy is supposed to be and what the church is here to do today. And if I have accomplished that to any degree this morning, then I am satisfied. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.